Welcome to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Our show is at the crossroads of commons and closure with historian Peter Leinbaugh. We open with Atlantic Black from drummer and composer Micaiah McRaven off of the 2018 release Universal Beings. The current uprisings, which are beginning to threaten the status quo of policing in the United States and bringing the demands of abolition into the broad daylight of public debate, have created an unprecedented potential for radical change in the U.S. But these threats and demands upon the carceral logic of state violence are not simply the spontaneous products of this current moment, and instead echo a long history of struggle against the racial encroachment of policing and the enclosure of human life. We are joined today by historian and author Peter Leinbaugh to talk about this long history of struggle, based both on his own experiences of resistance to enclosure and on the historical examples that motivate his work. Leinbaugh is most notably an historian of the revolutionary Atlantic, a current in historical studies that focuses on the revolutionary and world-changing upheaval that engulfed the whole Atlantic system in the 18th and 19th centuries giving way to the Industrial Revolution, the formation of new nation-states, and the expansion of a capitalist economic system. But beneath the veneer of these world historical events lie the struggles of those who fought on many fronts for a common humanity and for a livelihood held in common that became increasingly chiseled away at the hands of social, political, and economic exploitation. This is the most persistent through-line in Leinbaugh's many works, from The Many-Headed Hydra, co-authored with Marcus Redeker, to his most recent book, Red Round Globe, Hot Burning, The Transnational Struggle to Preserve, Protect, and Produce the Commons Against the Looming Threat of Enclosure. This struggle developed through the encounter between different sectors of the Atlantic working class, the enslaved, sailors, indentured servants, and others who then had to resolve contradictions in order to assemble themselves into new class compositions capable of facing their exploiters. This process is instructive for participants in today's uprisings, who must also confront differing risks and stakes and figure out creative ways to come together. We begin our program with Limebaugh by asking him about his life and labor and the ideas and influences that have animated his work. And now, at the crossroads of commons and closure with Peter Limebaugh on Interchange on WFHB. I generally describe myself as a people's remembrancer. I'm interested in rewriting history from the standpoint not of states and generals, kings and such, but from the standpoint of the common people with a view to the future. I'm a child of empire, so I grew up in Karachi, Pakistan, 
Bonn, Germany, London, Cattaraugus, New York, Muskogee, Oklahoma, and Washington, D.C. And then I went off to college, and the Quakers taught me at Swarthmore. From there, I went to New York, and the uh, at Columbia, the Cold Warriors taught. And I left that, shook the dust off my feet, and went over to study with E.P. Thompson and uh, English socialists. In particular, did a history of crime. I was especially interested in that because uh, back in the 1960s, they used to besmirch or demonize rebels by calling them criminals. And so what we did was show how a, a great deal of criminalized activity was forms of working class resistance. So E.P. Thompson was one uh, leading intellectual source, but I guess the main one from the teenage years on was Karl Marx. Uh, and, you know, I especially love some of his American followers like Oscar Ameringer, the Mark Twain of American socialism. I returned to here to Turtle Island and got busy right away with the prison abolition movement, working with prisoners throughout New England. And uh, there I was taught by many people on the inside. I studied C.L.R. James, whom I'd met in London earlier. I came out to the Midwest once or twice to Detroit uh, to see uh, what I could learn from the wildcatting auto workers of the mid and late 70s before returning to uh, New England. At that time, I became a, a college professor, which was a very nice thing at the time. It uh, gave me time to, to write. So I wrote this, this book called The London Hang, which was a uh, history by the neck, uh, looking at the people who had suffered capital punishment. That's where I developed the idea of the thanatocracy or of government by death. And I think this summer of 2020, we're in the midst of it for all to see. In his book, The London Hanged, Leinbach charts the design of a thanatocracy in England with the growing Whig regime in the 17th century and the attempt to justify capital punishment and the death penalty for the benefit of national sovereignty. We speak further with Leinbaugh about his concept of thanatocracy in more recent works later in the interview. But first, we hear about his teaching and research as it culminates in his present book, Red Round Globe, Hot Burning. I began to learn about African-American history and also about indigenous history. Uh, At Attica, there were people of the Seneca Nation in the class that I taught, and I learned from them. And coming to the Midwest, I begin now to see the land and the Great Lakes as part of Turtle Island. So I'm thinking of the U.S. less and less as the USA and more and more as something else. And for the time being, as a place marker, I'm calling it Turtle Island. And just to remind myself of the original people. In any case, uh, at that time, I published uh, The Many-Headed Hydra along with Marcus Redeker, who you may know for his wonderful book called The Slave Ship, and a more recent study he's done about the revolutionary abolitionist Benjamin Lay. Uh, But from that, uh, these earlier studies of crime, the studies of Many-Headed Hydra, I began uh, becoming interested in the commons and in the crisis uh, leading up to the Iraq war, I was impelled and inspired to return. I never thought I'd have to do such work to the, some of the foundations of uh, 
what shall we say, the libertarian tradition? This is Interchange on WFHB. Our guest is historian Peter Linebaugh, author of The London Hanged, The Magna Carta Manifesto, and most recently, Red Round Globe, Hot Burning, which takes its title from a poem by William Blake. The book traces revolutionary aspirations as exemplified in the lives of Edward and Catherine Despard, or Ned and Kate. Anyway, I wrote a book on the Magna Carta, the Magna Carta Manifesto, because that came over to the United States, this Magna Carta, which means just big charter, without the little charter, which was the charter of the commons. Uh, And so this notion of the commons dropped out of American law, dropped out of American and English um, constitution. And I wish to revive it because the discussion of the commons enables us to imagine a world that is not divided between the capitalist class and the working class, to imagine a world not divided between the rich and the poor, to imagine a world not not organized by the commodity private property. This was the Magna Carta, the Magna Carta Manifesto was the name of that book. And I published a couple other books uh, at the time, another one called Stop Thief, because at that time I wanted to rethink the radical tradition uh, from the standpoint of the commons. So I looked at William Morris and Tom Paine again. By this time, in, I'm actually in the Midwest, not in Ohio. I'd left, uh, I'd left the University of Toledo and moved to uh, Ann Arbor uh, for the sake of, uh, really for the sake of the library and the sake of the school. And here in Ann Arbor, I met up with Alan Haber, who used to be a uh, one of the authors of the Port Huron Statement and the Students for Democratic Society formed in 1962. So this is now almost 50 years later. And uh, he is, became interested in the commons. So, so this gave me an impetus to write that book, Stop Thief. Also, I should say that I continued every May Day to write essays about May Day and the red and the green, because I didn't want to say, despite the collapse of the Soviet Union, despite the collapse of what seemed to be the communist project as the Soviet Union represented it. I did not want to jettison all of red culture. And that, that included May Day, which of course long preceded the Soviet Union. Uh, and of course, had it, the red side had its origin here in the Midwest in Chicago in 1886. But the green side was much longer and going way back medieval European history. In any case, that was the source of another book. And all along, in the back of my mind, I was thinking of Turtle Island. I was thinking of U- the USA as this settler colonial regime that gave itself political identity through what it called the Constitution. But this Constitution completely omitted how people actually were constituted, uh, which was in this struggle of the commoners on the one side and privatizers on the other, or the settler colonial regime versus indigenous forms of commoning. It's time for a break. This is three-fifths a man. 
another from drummer-composer Micaiah McRaven, this time off the 2016 release In the Moment. Stay with us for more at the crossroads of commons and closure when Interchange returns on WFHB. Welcome back to Interchange on WFHB. Our show is at the crossroads of commons and closure about the great efforts of people to struggle against the carceral oppressions of capitalism as it encompasses mind and body. Our guest is historian and author Peter Leinbaugh, whose most recent book, Red Round Globe, Hot Burning, recovers the death-defying heroism of extended networks of underground resistors fighting against privatization of the commons accomplished by two political entities the USA, and the UK. I had to rethink the Atlantic Commons, and this I was enabled to do by this story of an Irishman, Ned Despard, and his partner, uh, Kate Despard, or Catherine. Ned was Irish, Catherine was African-American, and he was hanged and decapitated in 1803. They had lived in different parts of America, British Honduras, Jamaica, Nicaragua, and they flourished during the revolutionary decade of the 1790s. So I wrote a large book about them, a book that gets its title from the finest prophet of that era, William Blake, and uh, Red Round Globe Hot the Burning. This comes from a Blake poem, which was a celebration of the beginning of the Haitian anti-slavery struggle that began in August 1791, the very time that the USA is formed. The Haitian revolt succeeds in 1803 and becomes independent on the 1st of January, 1804. So over about, you know, a little more than 10 years, this is the very 10 years when Kate and Ned are active in revolutionary struggles in Ireland and in England. 
This was the era when the maximum number of enclosure acts were passed. This was the era of the maximum number of slaves embarking for America occurred. This was the era of the factory, the era of the plantation or the death camp, and the era of the penitentiary. All these three dreadful enclosing hell, hellish institutions were formed pretty much in the 1790s or reached a kind of culmination at that time. Much of Limebaugh's work has focused upon a central theme of the struggle against enclosure and the struggle for the commons. He writes that, quote, the commons refers to an idea and to a practice. As a general idea, the commons means equality of economic conditions. As a particular practice, the commons refers to forms of both collective labor and communal distribution. The term suggests alternatives to patriarchy, to private property, to capitalism, and to competition, unquote. In the face of a government which attempts to deliver death as a means of instilling control over its citizenry, the commons shines through for Linebaugh as a ray of hope and the practice of hospitality towards others. Of course, the work of history and the historian is never one divorced from the circumstances of the present. In the words of Frederick Douglass, we have to do with the past only as we can make it useful to the present and to the future. Linebaugh's work makes available the vast commons of history to the struggle of the present. We asked how his recent work has helped him think about the recent struggles to abolish repressive institutions in the United States. Kate Despard was a fantastic organizer against the penitentiary. And so I see her as like an earlier progenitor of, of Angela Davis or of Ruthie Gilmore or of many of those who are active now in the prison abolition movement. Red Round Globe Hot Burning is still very much with me, and the issues in it have by no means been settled. And I think one of the principal issues in it is to try to develop an alternative form of organizing ourselves besides the USA or the UK. And to do that, I need to to remind everyone that the USA has its birth uh, in the three-fifths clause in, in the racial regime of the 1790s. The person who formulated that, that fraction, three-fifths, his name was James Wilson. He was a, on the first Supreme Court. He was a multi-million acre land speculator. In other words, theft of Native American lands, whether it's of the Haudenosaunee in New York or the Creek and Chickasaw of Alabama and Georgia. This man, James Wilson, had his finger in those speculations. But what I wanted to say is that he gave a lecture in 1791 in Philadelphia in praise of private property and denigrating the notion of the commons or common property. And this this is why I think James Wilson needs to be remembered again. You know, in this era when everyone's watching Alexander Hamilton, we need to think about James Wilson. This is the guy who helps Jefferson with their instruments of mapping the U.S. into squares and then to public lands and then selling those squares, you know, the counties, the townships, into private lots thus privatizing the Ohio Valley. Oh, man, it's, a, it's just it's just a dreadful project. There's no reason why people should uh, know about it in the normal course of education, because they generally hide it. 
This is Interchange on WFHB. Our guest is historian Peter Leinbaugh, author of The London Hanged, The Magna Carta Manifesto, and most recently Red Round Globe, Hot Burning, which takes its title from a poem by William Blake. The book traces revolutionary aspirations as exemplified in the lives of Edward and Catherine Despard, or Ned and Kate. It's the key to the U.S. Constitution, which is this alliance between the northern states and the southern states. But there were more people in the northern states. Uh, The southern states did not regard slaves as people. And therefore, in enumerating the population for the purposes of congressional representation, the southern states were in this bind. On the one hand, they wanted to enumerate uh, slaves for the purposes of representation to be equal uh, to the northern states. On the other hand, slavery entailed the social death or the dehumanization of human beings. This was their problem at the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia in 1787. And the way they solved it was by treating slaves as three-fifths of a human being. That was for the purposes of enumerating the populations of the American South. So this fraction was at the heart of the alliance between the northern colonies and the southern colonies that became the basis of the USA. That's the three-fifths clause. Remember it. It it's puts alienation. It puts fractionation. It puts dehumanization at the center of the history of the USA's constitution, you know, not to be removed until the Civil War, until the great wars for the liberation of slaves, 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment. That's another story. But certainly your listeners need to know what the importance of that three-fifths clause. You see it in the knee of the officer on the neck of George Floyd. That dehumanization still lives, still flourishes in the USA in many other ways. All I did was go and look and see, well, who, why three-fifths? You know, why not five-eighths or one-half? Or, you know, who, who developed this? What kind of mindset thinks like this? And I found it in this man, James Wilson. And then when I learned these other things, that he was on the first Supreme Court, that he was a leading profiteer in turning the sacred lands of Turtle Island into a capitalist project for for European banks on the one hand and for settler uh, colonists on the other, um, I said, wow, this guy is deliberately out to destroy the commons on Turtle Island. Why didn't we learn this story? And the answer, of course, is clear, that we can only teach this story once we have power ourselves to imagine a future of the commons. And, to see, and to, to see ourselves and our own struggle as part of that. Though Leinbaugh notes that thanatocracy as a form of governance was developed and sharpened in the time of Ned and Kate Despard, the revolutionary protagonist of his red round globe hot burning, it is just as much with us today. The murder of George Floyd, as well as the countless acts of repression and violence carried out by the state against protesters in recent weeks, has been one distinct articulation of thanatocracy. A life in protest against the conciliatory and repressive state is one deemed by a thanatocracy as devoid of human value and rendered available for death and enclosure. 
Linebaugh here gives us a sense of what propels this death drive of imperial powers throughout the Atlantic in the wake of revolutionary upheaval in the late 18th century. In general, you know, to to you and to your listeners, I would say that the notion of thanatocracy, the idea of it, if not the word, comes from John Locke, who defined sovereignty as the power to make laws punishable by death. Uh, that's a quote from, from political theory. That's a notion of human community that lies at the heart of the principal philosophical thinker behind the origins of the USA, John Locke, the English philosopher. How thanatocracy worked in the 18th century was by public hanging. The public hangings came to an end when the working class no longer was so terrified by them. When the working class developed gallows humor, when the working class threatened resistance at the sight of public hangings, in particular when the family of those who were suffering at the gallows tree uh, would try to rescue the person about to be launched into eternity. And as a result, capital punishment was privatized. That is, it was put into penitentiary behind walls and no longer public. It's time for a break. This is The Digger's Song, performed by the anarcho-communist English rock band Chumbawamba. The Diggers were a group of Protestant radicals in England in the mid-17th century, sometimes seen as forerunners of modern anarchism, and also associated with agrarian socialism. The Diggers advocated for an early form of public health insurance and communal ownership in opposition to individual ownership. More with historian Peter Limbaugh when Interchange returns on WFHB. You noble diggers all stand up now, stand up now. You noble diggers all stand up now. The wasteland to maintain, seen cavaliers by name. Your digging does maintain, and persons all defame. Stand up now, stand up now. With spades and hoes and ploughs, stand up now, stand up now. With spades and hoes and ploughs, stand up now. Your freedom to uphold, seen cavaliers are bold, to kill you if they could, and rights from you to hold. Stand up now, diggers all. The lawyers they conjoin, stand up now, stand up now. The lawyers they conjoin, stand up now. To arrest you they advise, such fury they devise. The devil in them lies, and have blinded both their eyes. Stand up now, stand up now. The clergy they come in, stand up now, stand up now. The clergy they come in, stand up now. The clergy they come in, and say it is a sin, that we should now begin, our freedom for to win. Stand up now, diggers all. The gentry are all round, stand up now, stand up now. The gentry are all round, stand up now. 
The gentry are all round, on each side they are found, their wisdom so profound, to cheaters of our ground. Stand up now, stand up now. The club is all their law, stand up now, stand up now. The club is all their law, stand up now. The club is all their law, to keep poor men in awe. That they no vision saw To maintain such a law Stand up now, diggers all Welcome back to Interchange on WFHB Our show is at the crossroads of commons and closure about the great efforts of people to struggle against the carceral oppressions of capitalism as it encompasses mind and body our guest is historian and author Peter Leinbaugh, whose most recent book, Red Round Globe, Hot Burning, recovers the death-defying heroism of extended networks of underground resistors fighting against privatization of the commons, accomplished by two political entities, the USA and the UK. But looking at the, at the broad... Uh, statistics of thanatocracy, I think the key thing uh, for the end of the 18th and the beginning of the 19th century, which is a key which is still able to unlock the mysteries of our own contradictions, is a key held by Thomas Malthus, whose essay on population of 1798, and then its second edition of 1803, organizes the population or the demography of the, these new capitalist societies by organizing death, the deaths that come from war, the deaths that come from famine, the deaths that come from disease. How to account for these in relationship to births, in relationship to natal policy. So the state is beginning to plan the population, do you see, by organizing and understanding how deaths work, and organizing and planning how births work. So, for instance, Ned Despard is tried by a judge named Edward Law. Uh, he becomes an aristocrat, so he gets another name they call Lord Ellenborough. He's the one who sentences Ned Despard to death in February 1803. Two weeks later, after Despard is long gone, this guy Ellenborough introduces a statute in the House of Lords for the first time in world history, using the statute against abortion. It made it a capital offense to contribute by abortifacients or other birth control. So it is an attempt by the state now to intervene in the woman's body or to intervene in how births are to be organized. Now, it's true that this statute was rarely, if ever, actually employed. There are many other ways. You ask, you know, about 1803 and thanatocracy. I think this is part of population control, which, as I said, becomes a statistical matter of the state right at this time. They want more proletarians. They want more proletarians for the factories. They want more proletarians for the death camps of the cotton and sugar regime of the Caribbean. And above all, they want more proletarians to die in the wars of conquest. This whole era is characterized by nonstop war for empire and between England and France 
for hegemony in Europe. The title of Limebaugh's recent book, Red Round Globe Hot Burning, comes from William Blake's poem, Visions of the Daughters of Albion, published in 1793. In the poem, Blake writes, They told me that I had five senses to enclose me up, and they enclosed my infinite brain into a narrow circle, and sunk my heart into the abyss, a red, round globe, hot, burning, till all from life I was obliterated and erased. The words are spoken by the mythic figure Los, Leinbaugh sees them as having two meanings, the red round globe signifying both the human heart and planet Earth. From here, Leinbaugh introduces us to his concept of the underground, which encompasses both the underground activities of revolutionaries like Ned and Kate Despard, while simultaneously evoking the natural material that rests below the Earth's crust, material that was beginning to be exploited for industrial use at the same time that enclosure was forcing underground the visionaries of the commons. I think I want to distinguish before going further between the the commons as an ideal and the commons as a matter of practical subsistence. As a matter of practical subsistence, in slavery, the factory, and the penitentiary, especially in closures in England and Ireland, put an end to that practical forms of subsistence, where, you know, the ability to maintain a cow on the side of the road Uh, provides a family with milk, provides a family with cheese. Um, You know, supposing we did that, you know, on our big highways, using the green side for pasture. The commons, as a practical matter, meant estovers, or the ability to use fallen timbers or, you know, twigs or branches from the forest or from woodlands as a basis of fuel. So this era, coal replaces wood. Wood had been the source for cooking, the source for warmth, the source for making handles for tools. This all came from estovers, which was a common right uh, to wood in the forest. These are the two principal common rights as a practical matters of subsistence, pasturage and estovers. With enclosures, they are destroyed. They're obliterated. They're erased. You know, I might mention another common right, you know, what you find in the Old Testament, uh, in Leviticus or Deuteronomy, and I think in the book of Numbers even, you find the right of gleaning. The Lord tells you not to harvest too efficiently. You want to leave stuff for the poor, the stranger, and the widow. That's the basis of gleaning. Anyway, gleaning was also destroyed in this period. It's criminalized. So these three forms of practical subsistence commoning were criminalized. This is Interchange on WFHB. Our guest is historian Peter Leinbaugh, author of The London Hanged, The Magna Carta Manifesto, and most recently, Red Round Globe, Hot Burning, which takes its title from a poem by William Blake. The book traces revolutionary aspirations as exemplified in the lives of Edward and Catherine Despard, or Ned and Kate. There were many other forms of commoning, including within the city, which is important because that's where police originate, to help criminalize 
the commoning that took place among artisans within London and within other cities. So with their destruction, there is also simultaneously the birth and development of a of the commons as an ideal, as something to strive toward, a, a, a realm that seems utopian, a realm that seems the big rock candy mountain of continual milk and honey. People would fought for that idea. Now, what is the meaning of the underground? The term the underground in uh, labor and social history arises when laws are passed to forbid workers from organizing. Organizing, not particularly to regain the commons, but organizing to shorten the hours of work, the hours of toil, organizing to increase the remuneration or the wages or the income. In 1798, laws were passed prohibiting the formation of trade unions. And therefore, workers had to organize clandestinely or in secret. And this is the beginning of the underground tradition in the English working class. But you find a similar underground tradition among slaves on the plantation. You find a similar underground tradition among Irish. It just takes a moment to think the underground is something else as well. The underground is something literal. Underneath our feet is the earth's crust, uh, consisting of different minerals and stones that have been formed over millions of years. Within that, you find energy, namely petroleum, namely coal. 1803, the 1790s, is at the time when that energy source, namely coal, comes to the surface and is burnt for the steam engines that propel the global economy. We hear now about Kate and Ned Despard, the revolutionaries who traveled the Atlantic together navigating the reaches and the limits of the British Empire throughout the Americas, and who arrived in London in the 1790s with an aspiration to seize the land from the grips of enclosure and return it to a people in common. Leinbach paints the lives of these two prolific defenders of the commons through a broad sweep of the far-reaching upheavals and revolutionary tumult that characterized the era and shook the foundations of the British imperial thanatocracy. In one way, this is a tale of these two heroic individuals fighting in what ways they could against a cruel and unjust government. In another light, however, Leinbach helps us to see these figures as emblems of a collective struggle to defend the commons that influenced and infused their work, extending well beyond them in scope and time, reaching us today. I think what's important now is uh, to contrast Ned and Kate with Sally Hemings and Thomas Jefferson, because Kate also was a woman of color, uh, and she may have been enslaved. I don't know that she was. She was a Creole woman from Jamaica or from British Honduras, or she may have come from the American South. We're not sure. Probably Jamaica, where she meets Ned Despard. And now I think what we need to understand is that these conquerors of empire were from Europe, and they came to tropical America, where their bodies wanted tending. And the people who tended these men were women who nursed them, who put new compresses on their forehead as in the fever of malaria, who knew how to work in the bush, who knew uh, the botanical characteristics uh, around them. 
who could provide medicines or, or food, could produce gumbo or foods, soups, who could do the cleaning of the man's soiled clothes. These ruling conquerors quickly attached themselves to skilled concubines or skilled nurses, skilled cooks, skilled laundresses. For example, take uh, Nelson, you know, the, uh, the man in Trafalgar Square in London, the English hero for many centuries. He almost perished had it not been for an African-American woman by the name of Cuba Cornwallis, who looked after him and preserved his life. Anyway, these are probably the circumstances where Ned and Kate met one another. Usually what would happen, I'd say almost universally, was when the conqueror, the white man, returned to England, white officer, uh, he left his partner, his nurse, his cook, his laundress behind. And this was owing to the development of a color line which is now being formed in England for the first time, where people of color are not welcome. It's time for a break. This is Prosperity's Fear, another from Micaiah McRaven off of the album Universal Beings. We continue with historian Peter Lineball when Interchange returns on WFHB. Welcome back to Interchange on WFHB. Our show is at the crossroads of commons and closure, about the great efforts of people to struggle against the carceral oppressions of capitalism as it encompasses mind and body. Our guest is historian and author Peter Leinbaugh, whose most recent book, Red Round Globe, Hot Burning, 
recovers the death-defying heroism of extended networks of underground resistors, fighting against privatization of the commons, accomplished by two political entities, the USA and the UK. So what was so unusual about the Irishman, Ned Despard, is that he brought Kate with him on their return to Europe and brought her and their son, John Edward, and brought a train of other people. So when they arrived in London in 1791, I think it was, Kate now becomes part of the people of color in London who are now helping to form music, helping to form sport, uh, are teaching the, the men in the House of Commons or the House of Lords the arts of lovemaking uh, as, as sex, sex workers. Um, there is a large, growing population of people of color, including spokespeople like Otaba Kugoano, who in 1787 develops the notion of a rainbow coalition using that very term. Or perhaps Olauda Equiano, a Nigerian whose autobiography all of us should read. Um, it is a powerful, exciting adventure story of a quality that of Robinson Crusoe or the quality of one of Frederick Douglass's autobiographies. Equiano is helping to form the English working class. Uh, this is in 1791-92. And he does this with Ned Despard, and Kate Despard joins this community, which is going to be underground. And it's certainly, these are Democrats. These are people calling for the abolition of slavery. These are people uh, who are followers, not just of Tom Paine and the rights of man, but followers of Tom Spence, who's calling for commons for all. And all of us uh, should read Thomas Paine, but especially Thomas Spence. And you can read about him in Red Round Globe Hot Burning, or better yet, Google him and go to the Thomas Spence page and read what he actually wrote. But anyway, I'm trying to evoke for you the, the democratic uh, popular commoners of London uh, that Ned and Kate joined when they returned in 1791. He's, he's picked up for, for throwing a stone at the prime minister's window, William Pitt. The 1790s, they're all over the world, there's different revolutions that are happening. Uh, usually they're bourgeois revolutions, as we know from France and the storming of the Bastille, etc. But in England, too, and in Ireland and in Scotland and in Wales, there are attempts to do away with aristocracy, do away with the nobility, and to do away with privatization. And it's in this milieu that Kate and Ned uh, flourish. At the end of the decade. Uh, after the failure of the Irish rebellion of 1798, the heat is on Ned Despard <clears throat> and on Kate. This is now one adventure story after another as they have to change address. It's like, it's like studying any underground movement. Eventually, they, he is tried along with six others, and they'll be found guilty at a mass, and at a mass hanging of conspiracy to take over Windsor Castle, to take over the Bank of England in alliance with the textile workers of the North, with the sailors and soldiers of the South, and with the urban proletariat to take Windsor Castle 
and they were even accused of plotting to assassinate uh, George III, a king beloved by nobody. They were impeached. That means they were betrayed by Thomas Emblem, a watchmaker. Uh, but this story is, is one that I tell in this book. On February 21, 1803, Ned Despard was led to his fate, where he was hanged in front of a London crowd for the crimes leveled against him under conspiracy of insurrection. Upon approaching his fate, with a noose tightened around his neck, Ned spoke his final words to a crowd of thousands, delivering the gallows speech that was drafted by himself and Kate together. In it, we glimpse the ideals of a couple dedicated to a struggle for the commons, to a radical equality that viewed every person as together in community and to a vision of the human race that triumphed over the bitter death that was delivered to Ned. We asked Limebaugh to recite Ned's gallows speech, bringing life to his final words and carrying them into the present. Fellow citizens, Despard says, I come here, as you see, after having served my country faithfully, honorably, and usefully served it for 30 years and upwards to suffer death upon a scaffold for a crime of which I protest I am not guilty. I solemnly declare that I'm no more guilty of it than any of you who may be now hearing me. But though His Majesty's ministers know as well as I do that I am not guilty, yet they avail themselves of a legal pretext to destroy a man because he's been a friend to truth, to liberty, and to justice, because he has been a friend to the poor and to the oppressed. But, citizens, I hope and trust, notwithstanding my fate, and the fate of many who no doubt will soon follow me, that the principle of freedom, of humanity, and of justice will finally triumph over falsehood, tyranny, and delusion, and every principle hostile to the interests of the human race. I have little more to add, except to wish you all health, happiness, and freedom, which I have endeavored as far as was in my power to procure for you and for mankind in general. And with that, Colonel Edward Marcus Despard was launched into eternity, and the 20,000 who were there took their hats off in acknowledgement of this death. This is Interchange on WFHB. Our guest is historian Peter Linebaugh, author of The London Hanged, The Magna Carta Manifesto, and most recently Red Round Globe, Hot Burning, which takes its title from a poem by William Blake. The book traces revolutionary aspirations as exemplified in the lives of Edward and Catherine Despard, or Ned and Kate. After Ned's hanging, Kate continued to fight for prison abolition and made significant efforts to change the living conditions of prisoners. Their legacy continues to live on with us today, and we can see echoes of their struggle in current movements around prison abolition, workers' struggles, and movements of anti-racism. What we can learn, I think, is uh, solidarity with prisoners. That's the first thing 
Um, she joined other relatives of prisoners. They formed a committee on the outside. They raised money. She wrote letters to the to the press, the newspapers. She lobbied politicians. Uh, she forced politicians to speak against the tortuous conditions of prison, to speak against that, those conditions in parliament. Those were some of the activities that she led uh, the wives of other prisoners and other prisoner support groups, including Francis Place in the London Corresponding Society. Ned Despard is, becomes familiar, I think, with at least half a dozen prisons, the Tower of London, uh, the Steel, the Shrewsbury Prison, and in them, he conducts what struggle is available and is possible. At one point, he's denied even a spoon with which to uh, use an implement to, to eat the gruel that's served to him. I emphasize all of this because the first penitentiary in the USA is formed at the same time that the Wall Street is formed, at the same time that the USA is formed back in 1790-91. This is a time of discipline and punish, to quote the writings of Michel Foucault. What I must emphasize is that the people who continue this struggle against the prison are the very same people who lead the struggle outside the slave system of the abolitionists. The abolitionists of the prison and the abolition of the death camp plantation are the same. And perhaps there's something here for us to learn in 2020 going into the future. The relationship between the penitentiary and the factory, between the penitentiary and the meatpacking plant, the penitentiary and the assembly plant, these are an historically close relation. And the penitentiary is always used as a means of devaluing the worker, just like the process of criminalization is used to devalue and diminish subsistence practices of the commons. I just uh, am in awe and in deep gratitude to the men and women who support the prison abolition movement in the USA today, this carceral uh, society that we live in. And again, I grieve the death of those who suffered this week and the resumption of the federal death penalty. Finally, we asked Leinbaugh for his reflections on the present moment in the wake of a global pandemic and an insurgent force that is shaking the foundations of the police system in the United States and how his work as an historian has helped him inform his views of the present. Well, we must do so with uh, dignity. We must do so looking after each one one another. We do this by masking and social distancing in our public presentations. Michel Foucault and I, I like to think of, were in dialogue. So yes, he, he, he emphasized the totalitarian side of things and me with many, many others like Marcus Redeker or Nicholas Frickman or Angela Davis or, uh, or Julia Scott look at things from below. And we see history being made from below as the ruling class reacts to what we do. That's my reflection. 
That's our show. We'll close with a final selection from Micaiah McRaven off of Universal Beings. This is Wise Man, Wiser Woman. Thanks to Peter Leinbaugh for his insights on the necessity to be commons-minded as we face the material depredations, ruthless violence, and imaginative poverty of enclosure formed through the system of global capitalism and informed by the ideology of white supremacy. I'm your host, Doug Storm. Cole Nelson produced today's episode with assistance from Hugh Farrell. Cade Young is executive producer. You're listening to Bloomington, Indiana's community radio station, WFHB. Thanks for listening.